ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi there, Selena Green with you on this hot, windy Friday. I hope you're staying safe and staying cool wherever you're listening from today. I'd love you to give me a bit of a weather report because I'd really love to know what's going on in your patch. Give us an idea of uh, how things are sitting around the state at the moment. So give us a call. 1300 222 891 is my talkback number. Or you can text me on 0467 922 891. Also coming up, some good news for primary producers wanting some help towards the cost of installing water infrastructure. A rebate scheme for this has been expanded. When it was set up, drought, of course, was a major concern. And we all know in South Australia, drought's always something of a major concern. But there's also the real need for producers to also be able to deal with such things as our natural disasters. More on that in a moment. Speaking of weather, of course, we have total fire bans. In 10 districts across South Australia today, some of those listed as catastrophic. We've got heatwave warnings for pretty much most, if not all, of South Australia. You will get a comprehensive update from the Weather Bureau in this half an hour. So stick around because there is, of course, plenty that you need to know. But fair to say that conditions across South Australia today are really not the kind that you'd want to be out harvesting in. Brad Perry joins me now from Grain Producers South Australia. Hi, Brad, and thanks for coming on the program. Hi, Selena. I don't imagine there'd be many parts of the state where it would be appropriate to be harvesting out in today's conditions. Oh, look, we, we adhere to the uh, Grain Harvesting Code of Practice, so if it does say that uh, in your local conditions on farm um, that you still can harvest, then, then that's possible. We, we harvest to those conditions, but, yeah, things are, are looking like they're going to get um, pretty uh, messy at some points throughout the day, so... Um, I think we'll see uh, certainly a lot of uh, a lot of growers are still going uh, in harvest. We'll, we'll have to see. Uh, yeah. So if they are out and about and listening, and and, and they are out uh, doing that harvesting today, pretty regularly checking of those conditions. Yeah, that's right. Look, our, our system that we have um, in South Australia is is a, a national leading system, and uh, a lot of our growers adhere to it. So. I think today is one of those days, and we've actually sent a text message out to all of our, our uh, members to say, uh, make sure you adhere to the Grain Harvest Code of Practice today, is that we've got a, a really challenging uh, weather pattern coming over. So that was just a reminder to stick to those conditions. And um, we've already heard there's a, a number of grass fires, and we've got dry lightning. You know, it's really a trifecta, lightning, heat, and, and wind. So we've got to be really careful today um, to keep everyone safe. Absolutely. So for those who are in those areas where things have tipped past the point of uh, where they, they should be coming out of those paddocks, time to put the feet up, get something else done around the house today? Yeah, that's right. I've actually already seen uh, uh, on social media, on Twitter, there's been a few um, tweets saying they've gone to get the, the, the coffee and, and watch the uh, the lightning show. So mm. uh, some, some have already pulled up stumps, but the challenge we've got is that we've just had a rain, uh, a patch of rain a, a few weeks ago, which halted things. And so this is going to halt things again. So we've had a lot of uh, growers over the last 48 hours, you know, working really hard to try and get as much crop off as they can. Um, you know, otherwise we, we may see a bit of an impact on, on quality after a couple of rain events. 
Yeah, because I mean, some would be finished already anyway, uh, and we know some had an early start, but there is still plenty of crop to come out in parts of South Australia. Yeah, this is a this has been the earliest finish um, for many right across the state. So it's not a huge percentage of growers that are still harvesting, but there's still uh, certainly some out there, um, you know, right across in, in pockets of the state. Um, and from the reports I've been getting, there's already uh, yeah lightning across some of those areas and, and quite a bit of rain. So you know, up mid north and York Peninsula. And, uh, yeah, it sounds like you're going to have the, the bomb on to provide an update. Mm. But um, from their forecast, there's going to be uh, little pockets of different thunderstorms going through different cropping regions across the state. So I think today of all days, the, uh, I've also spoken to the CFS and they've said, you know, this is a, a really significant weather day um, for fire danger. So we've got to do everything we can to remain vigilant today as, uh, as grain producers. Absolutely. How has the harvest been looking up until this point? Oh, look, it's been been good considering that um, we're getting rain events now, but it was very dry uh, right up until the start of harvest, hence the early early start to harvest. So uh, we're looking at about uh, just over an average um, crop right across the state still. Um, the first rain event from, from feedback I'm getting hasn't affected quality too badly, um, but a second one may. So that's why um, you know a lot of grain producers are trying to get the crop off as as quickly as they can. But, look, I think given given the conditions that we faced and, and what was really a, a low rainfall season, um, an average crop is a, is a credit to the growers, um, really, on their, their practices on farm. Yeah. Um, we are hearing of potentially some more rain next week, as you mentioned, and it could be some big totals. I think I've heard the Air Peninsula could be getting quite a dumping, and sometimes with these systems you're never quite sure exactly how much they'll bring. But uh, once these conditions calm down, will there sort of be a flurry of activity to try and get things in before that hits? Yeah, that's right. So generally when there's a, a big rain event, obviously quite a bit of moisture into the uh, into the crops. So wait for, wait for a few warm days to... Uh, to get rid of that moisture, then they'll be back into things. I mean, if, if we take a glass half full approach and, and look at this, uh, these rains events as a positive in, in many ways, because we're going to get some subsoil moisture that'll be sitting there for, for when um, the growers go to go to seed, and uh, which is which actually isn't that far away, um, mm. you know, next year. So I think that's the positive of it all. But we yeah, we want to try and get as much of the crop off as we can before we get uh, get these big rain events. Brad, thanks for joining us on the Country Hour today. If we don't speak to you again before then, have a safe and Merry Christmas to you and uh, everyone out there harvesting still. Yeah, thanks, Leanne. I really appreciate it. Pam Perry there from Grain Producers South Australia. It is 11 minutes past 12. In a bushfire, minutes matter and you need to take action. The Australian warning system means the same types of warnings no matter where you are. Advice. Means a fire has started, stay up to date. Watch and act. Means conditions are changing, get ready. Emergency warning. Any delay now puts your life at risk. For warnings near you, go to abc.net.au slash emergency. You're with Selena Green on the South Australian Country Hour. Now, more South Australian primary producers are now eligible for rebates towards the cost of installing on-farm water infrastructure. A new round has just opened up for the On-Farm Emergency Water Infrastructure and Rebate Scheme, which is jointly funded by the state and federal governments. A further $8 million has been put into this scheme, which was launched back in 2018 to help drought-affected producers. That has now changed slightly, as the Primary Industries Minister, Claire Scriven, explains. 
That's right. So previously this was available for drought-affected areas only, but it's now been extended to cover those who have been impacted by natural disasters, uh, which have occurred since the 1st of January 2022. So I guess here in South Australia that's really important because it means that primary producers who have been affected by the River Murray floods uh, will now be able to be uh, apply under this scheme. Uh, and also it means that it's now available across the state, whereas previously, under previous rounds, it was only available to drought-affected council areas. So it's... Um, an additional amount of $8 million uh, co-funded between the federal government and the state government, and it's going to provide a rebate of up to 25% to producers uh, to repair and um, replace damaged infrastructure, uh, as well as the original reasons, which was um, around you know, installing uh, on-farm water infrastructure as well. What was the thinking or reasoning behind the decision to expand the eligibility of this? Well, it was really an acknowledgement that um, when it was set up, drought, of course, was a major concern. And we all know in South Australia, drought's always something of a major concern. But there's also the um, the real need for producers to also be able to deal with such things as uh, natural disasters. So I think it's really important that this uh, broadening does mean that more people will be captured in terms of being able to access this assistance. What's the take-up been like in the past? Look, it's been pretty good. Um, the South Australian primary producers have obviously seen the benefits of the scheme in the past. Um, so it was particularly of use to, obviously, the drought-affected areas. Uh, but now to be able to provide assistance to, to livestock, to horticulture, to viticulture, uh, you know, all those areas impacted by the River Murray floods is incredibly important. So uh, I'm really hopeful that uh, people will become aware of the scheme and, uh, and put in their applications. So as you mentioned, the way it works, uh, it's up to 25% of the cost, but there is a cap on, on the overall project cost that it can be funded to? That's right. So it's up to a maximum of $25,000 per primary producer. So they will need to put in the, the balance, uh, but it is an important way of subsidising you know, up to a quarter of those costs. And the type of projects that can be put towards, it, they, it needs to what fall within that category of, of water infrastructure. So these can be things like tanks, um, dams, what, what else might fall under that? Yeah, look, it's, um, I'd encourage people to have a look at the guidelines on the PERSA website. Just go to that and look up on-farm water rebate. It'll give all of the details. Uh, but it is designed to uh, be looking at the water infrastructure, whether that's replacing and repairing what's been damaged through, for example, the floods or installing uh, new infrastructure. It still does include the former reasons. So that was things like addressing animal welfare needs during drought, um, assisting producers to be more resilient for future droughts. That's still the case. But now it is expanded also to be that support for recovery from natural disasters as well. That is South Australia's Primary Industries and Regional Development Minister Claire Scriven speaking there about uh, the on-farm emergency water infrastructure and rebate scheme. So that's open now. Applications for this round close on the 30th of April 2024 or when all the funds are allocated. If you want more information, you can find it on the PIRSA website, pir.sa.gov.au, uh, and just search for on-farm water rebate. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Don't forget to let me know what uh, you're seeing out there and what you're experiencing weather-wise across the state. Help give us a bit of a picture of what's going on. We've heard reports of dust storms, uh, lightning. Are you getting any rain out of this as yet? Or is it just uh, sort of windy and crackling out there? The talkback number, 1300 222891. Or that text line again, 0467 921. Well, Murray Zircon has temporarily stopped its main operations at its mineral sands mine in the Murray Mallee 
after compliance orders from the South Australian government. Now, it comes after the farming family who owned the land at Galga raised concerns with the Department of Energy and Mining over environmental breaches of its agreement. Our reporter Eliza Berlage met up with Kevin Hydrich at his property to hear about the situation. Oh, well, they cranked up in, I'm just trying to think about April. Uh, they built the processing plant. November they started last year. They started processing mineral in June, I think, but it's been off and on. They've been having a lot of trouble with that big plant behind us. But then it's all the stockpiles we worried about, as you can see in the background. Only allowed 17 hectares and they're up to 50.4, if not more. So they're in breach of the pepper. They're not allowed to remove no more overburden at the moment or topsoil. They are working across Jacker Road. They weren't supposed to cross Jacker Road, but they did. So they're removing subsoil at the moment and stockpiling, and that's all got to get hydromulched. And you fought not to have this mine happen on your property? Yes, we did. We didn't want it here. And this has been going since... Well, I was 39 when they started drilling down the road, and I'm 64 now, so it's been going a long time, and the agreement we've got with them, and they could be here for another eight or ten, so that makes me an old man by the time they're out of here. It's not really right. And it wasn't a generational property. You bought it in the year 2000 or so, and you're hoping, though, it for it to become yeah you know. the purchase we purchased we leased it in 93 we bought it in 94 we got a bit of a kickstart from the vendor and you know we built the property up to what we've got now what are your current concerns and what do you want to see happen well them to do the right thing and abide by what's in the pepper and listen to the government officials which is demita and that's what our problem is they haven't been listening to the pepper they're in breach of the pepper on numerous things and they didn't listen they had a um, compliance issued to them a bit over two weeks ago not to remove no overburden. They kept on removing overburden, so last Friday, I thought it was a complete shutdown, but there must be a change of plans again. They'd allowed a processed mineral in the pit still, but no overburden, topsoil or subsoil is allowed to get removed. They actually got to draw up a brand new pepper. And so people who wouldn't be aware, what is a pepper and what's overburden? A pepper is a government document, and that's what you've got to abide by. The mining company actually draws it up they send it to Demita, and Demita will go through it and they'll make the changes they have and it all gets signed off, so they have to abide by this pepper. And overburden, that's that stuff you see in the background, the massive stockpiles. They're allowed to go to 30 metres high and I think that's what they are at the moment. And you mentioned something about the, the amount of land that they were allowed to use as well? Yeah, well they're only allowed to use 17 hectares of overburden at one time, but they're up to 50.4 now, so yeah, they triple of what they're supposed to. I've used. And you, I understand, have been working or speaking with a lawyer and alerted the authorities. What sort of responses have you gotten? Well, they've done their job now, but very, very slow to start with. You know, it was the 29th of August when our lawyer first fronted them. And, you know, we've been talking and talking. No one from Demida, like a regulator, has been here since, I reckon it's nearly two months now. It's a long time. And I think they should be a little bit more oftener, especially when they're not in compliance. And what would the impact be to your, um, to your farming property uh, if they are in breach of those agreements, those well, four different agreements? It's just a worry, you know, if they're in breach of that, are they going to do the rehabilitation properly? So it is a bit of a worry for us. We're very, very concerned. You know, like I said, I've got a son that wants to take the farm and I've got a grandson after him. You know, we want the right thing done. 
And you had an absolute ripper of a harvest last year and you've, you've finished for this year. Yep. Um, it's, you know, the work doesn't stop. No, it Plenty of, of, of sheep work to do. Thinking about that and what's happening with the mine, you know, I guess how concerned are you for the future of farming on this land? Well, here? it is a concern because we've got 2,000 hectares of mining on this property, which is old school 5,000 acres and 27,000 acre property. It is a concern. It's a fair portion of your farm. If it doesn't come back and produces the way it does, you know, it's not good. Not good at all. That's Galga farmer Kevin Heydrich speaking with Eliza Berlage. A spokesperson for Murray's Urcon said in a statement that the company ceased mining and processing operations on Wednesday. Any works now will only be rehabilitation, maintenance and transport of product. It says it will work with the department to comply with its licence. It's confident it can achieve the directions within 28 days. Storms can be damaging and unpredictable. Fallen power lines are dangerous. Treat all power lines as live. Stay at least 10 metres away from them and warn others about the danger. Remember, they can be hard to see if they're tangled in tree branches, debris or flood water. Report fallen power lines by contacting your energy provider. For the latest storm updates and warnings, stay listening to ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. And uh, just checking the latest update on the SA Power Network's website. So they've got 21 outages uh, listed on their website so far across South Australia. So just over 5,400 customers without power. Uh, most of those I can see are north of Adelaide, up around Peterborough, Oruru as well, Melrose, Wallaroo as well, but there are other parts that are affected. ASA Power was expecting uh, that there would be power outages today, um, saying the weather trifecta does uh, pose a threat to electricity supply. That's the bushfire risk, the thunderstorms and the wind gusts. So, yeah, just be aware um, that there may be some extended outages due to the weather at your place. Just remember to keep at least 10 metres clear of down power lines. And if you see any down power lines, you can report them to SA Power Networks on 13 13 66. You're with Selena Green. It's 22 minutes past 12. We're going to head to the Weather Bureau now. Mark Analak, hello. Good afternoon, Selena. How are you going? Very good. So tell us what we need to know today. Well, still quite a bit going on. So starting off with today, clearly we have very hot conditions across the north. Temperatures are already into the 40s across pastoral districts, uh, reaching into the mid to high 30s across northern agricultural areas. Coincident with that, we are starting to see some quite strong winds. In fact, some of our winds are gusting uh, as much over 90 kilometres an hour. I think Coltana had a wind gust of 93 kilometres an hour earlier this uh, this morning. Uh, Snowtown currently blowing up around 90 kilometres an hour gusts. Uh, and, and with that sort of average wind speeds of 40 to 50, 50, 60 kilometres an hour. So um, very windy conditions through that northern agricultural area uh, and the southern pastoral districts. Um, hence the significant fire danger ratings across the state and, and the 10 bans we have across South Australia today, five of which are catastrophic uh, rating. Um, further south, we do have a band of middle-level cloud that's producing a little bit of shower activity. The showers are starting to reach the ground in parts, but in terms of rainfall amounts, negligible falls recorded so far. Um, but the main concern is a band of thunderstorms moving through northern Air Peninsula, uh, northern Spencer Gulf area that uh, are just coincident with those extreme temperatures and very windy conditions uh, helping to trigger a few uh, 
fires in the landscape. So it is certainly shaping up to be a very horrendous afternoon for, for northern parts of the state. Um, as we move into tomorrow, we're likely to set up a sort of a cloud band and a band of rain stretching from the northwest corner right down to the southeast corner of the state. Um, and within that band, we're likely to see falls of you know, uh, 30 to 50 millimetres uh, in, that, in that band stretching from the northwest down to the southeast. Um, some heavy falls at times as well, particularly about the uh, central districts, Mount Lofty Ranges and the northern York, northern York uh, Peninsula. So we could see some river responses with the rainfall expected um, through central districts tomorrow. Um, maybe touching on minor, we'll probably issue a flood watch uh, just for the uh, suggestion that we could see some river responses uh, for tomorrow through, through the Mount Lofty Ranges. Um, leading into Sunday, uh, we have an upper-level trough that will help to create or generate a very deep low-pressure system over Air Peninsula, um, and with that, we're likely to see an increase of rainfall stretching down through the north, uh, through the southern parts of the Northwest Pastoral District into Air Peninsula. Um, so, plenty of rainfall is expected with this very dynamic system. Um, sort of developing uh, on Sunday. So very wet conditions over Air Peninsula on Sunday. That low pressure system will sort of oscillate around a little bit, but eventually as we move into the early part of next week, we'll see um, just a general trend where showers over the southern parts of the state will gradually contract southwards and clear. But uh, certainly the next 24 to 40, uh, next sort of 48 to 72 hours is very interesting across the state. In terms of rainfall amounts, um, I know a lot of people have interest in those, but mm. uh, so looking at the next uh, right through to midnight Tuesday, between now and midnight Tuesday, we're likely to see uh, rainfall totals of 60 to 100 millimetres over Air Peninsula wow. uh, and the southeast part of the northwest pastoral district, locally reaching 100 to 150 millimetres in that area. Um, more generally across the state, we're looking at 30 to 60 millimetres grading to less than 10 millimetres east of a line about Udnadatta to Remmark and about the far west of the northwest pastoral district. With those, rain, those sort of rainfall figures over Air Peninsula, we're likely to issue a flood watch as well for uh, Air Peninsula for Sunday. Uh, quite a substantial amount of rainfall for that area uh, all in one day. So I think that's pretty much what I have for you at the moment, Selena, unless you've got any further questions you'd like to ask. No, I mean, there's a lot to take in there, is it there, Mark? Absolutely. It all seems to be throwing everything at us at the moment. Yeah, we've got a few warnings out there as well. Obviously, the heatwave warning. We've got severe weather warning for damaging winds, fire weather warnings, uh, total fire bans, sheep graziers advice as well, and as well as a downy mildew advice for Mount Lofty Ranges and the Mid-North Forecast Districts. All right. Well, everyone stay safe out there. Mark, thank you very much for the update. My pleasure. That's Mark Adelak there from the Weather Bureau. Now, uh, just a reminder about the total fire bans that have been declared across the state for today. We have uh, 10 total fire ban districts in play today. That includes the Northeast Pastoral District. That is an extreme rating. The West Coast, also extreme. The Eastern Air Peninsula, uh, that is listed as a catastrophic fire danger rating for today. Catastrophic also for the Flinders and the Mid-North, and both of those also have uh, total fire 
bans in place. Aside from the Flinders and Mid-North, we also have the Mount Lofty Ranges. That has an extreme fire danger rating. The York Peninsula, catastrophic. Also catastrophic fire danger rating for the Riverland and extreme fire danger ratings and total fire bans for the Murraylands and the Upper Southeast Districts as well. So please do keep that in mind. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales and the forecast for tomorrow. Now for the Upper Western District, sunny with northerly winds, 30 to 45 k's an hour, tending northwesterly in the morning and then tending northwest to northeasterly, 25 to 35 k's an hour in the late afternoon. Overnight temperatures falling to the mid to high 20s. Daytime temperatures will reach the low to mid 40s tomorrow. In the lower western district, mostly sunny tomorrow with north to northwesterly winds, 25 to 35 k's an hour. Shifting southerlies, 30 to 45 k's an hour during the morning and early afternoon. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 23 to 29. And in the daytime, those temps could reach up to around 32 to 45 degrees. Another hot one tomorrow. It's coming up to half past 12 here on The Country Hour. You're with Selena Green in this coming half an hour. How secure is Australia's food supply and our food supply and production systems? Well, a very lengthy parliamentary inquiry has been looking into this. It's just handed down its final report. What does it mean for us and what does it mean for South Australia? We'll take a look at that next. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there. Well, summer's certainly throwing some interesting weather our way already. It's only eight days in. Take care out there today, folks. Bit of a nasty one. And please keep me updated on what you're seeing out there weather-wise. What's it like where you are? I've been reports of dust storms in parts of the state, lightning. Are you getting any rain out of it? And just how windy is it at your place? Uh, help me fill in the picture. The talkback number is 1300 222891. Or the text line is 0467 922891 as well. We do know that there are a few power outages across parts of the state with this weather today as well, so take care. Now, do you remember the days of fighting over toilet paper in the supermarket and worrying about fresh food supply? Were those the days? I don't think anyone's in a hurry to see that again. Well, the past few years, and not just because of COVID, uh, there's been some serious and valid questions about the state and security of Australia's food supply. I'm going to take a dive into that for you in just a moment. And you'll also meet a hardworking young woman who's got quite the juggle on her hands. She's studying law while also working as a musterer in the outback. Sometimes it's really stressful because I'm like trying to kind of make a path in both of these areas because I'm so passionate in both of them. So I want to give like quite a lot to both and I don't want to say no to, to mustering jobs and I don't want to you know, put my studies on the back burner either. You'll hear her story shortly, but first here's Matt Coleman with news. Hello, Matt. 
Hello, Selina. In the news this afternoon, more than 3,000 properties in regional areas of the state have no power, while lightning has also caused several fires in the mid-north. Crews remain at a fire ground in the Mount Remarkable Ranges near Melrose in the mid-north. Other fires have been contained at West Bundalia and Lockheel. Meanwhile, blackouts are affecting thousands of properties around Upper York Peninsula and further north around Jamestown and Port Pirie. The Salisbury Community Christmas Carols have joined a growing list of events being scrapped across Adelaide tomorrow due to severe weather. Parts of Adelaide may receive up to 25 millimetres of rain after today's intense heat and gusty winds. The Gawler Carols have also been called off along with the City of Mitcham's Carols at Kingswood and the City of Burnside's Carols in the Park. And a court has ordered an elderly Adelaide man accused of murdering his 85-year-old wife last weekend to undergo a mental and physical health assessment. 91-year-old Francesco De Marci appeared before the Port Adelaide Magistrates Court via video link from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital today. The court was told he has dementia. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman there with those headlines. Well, the question is, how secure is Australia's food production? and supply. A year-long inquiry has been trying to answer that question, examining ways to strengthen and safeguard Australia's food security, focusing on things like production, supply chains and key inputs, as well as climate change, biosecurity and food insecurity. This week it released its final report and among the 35 recommendations are appointing a Minister for Food, creating a comprehensive national food plan and establishing a national food council. Committee Chair Meryl Swanson says in addition to improving production systems, Australia needs to seriously reduce food waste. The question of how food secure Australia is depends on really the perspective that you're looking at it from. In 2020, in response to COVID, ABES produced an analysis of food security in Australia, which described Australia as one of the most food secure countries in the world, which is a good thing. However, when you look at things like the Global Food Security Index, which analyses food security on a global scale, we came in at number 22. So there's certainly improvement that we can make. And also in relation to food security, it's a case of do we grow a lot of food? Absolutely we do. We export somewhere around about 70% of what we produce. However, there are also many in our country who are food insecure because they can't afford food or they don't have easy access to it. So it is really complicated, but there is certainly room for improvement in food security in Australia. So the committee's made 35 recommendations to address food security in the nation. This includes appointing a Minister for Food, creating a National Food Plan and establishing a National Food Council. That's a fair amount of intervention. Yes, and and the committee really thought long and hard about this, but those recommendations were really emphasised over and over again in many of the 188 submissions that we received. Nearly every major group that submitted to the inquiry said, we must have a plan for food in Australia. We need a map to show us what's grown where at what time. We need strategies around, you know, the best use of soil and water. We really do need a minister for food. And the most successful cases across the world, because we didn't just look 
here at Australia, we looked in other countries like Scotland, the United Kingdom, Canada, who have all faced challenges and all have some similarities to us in some respects to food security. They have the idea of a food council and they also have the concept of a food minister and they give attention to food, not only as an agricultural product, because we know how important that is and how important the whole industry is, but also to the health of our citizens and indeed as a national security issue. And as a government, we need to do that. International affairs obviously do affect Australia's food production. We saw what happened with the war in Ukraine and how that's affected the price of food due to input costs and the like. Although we produce a lot of food, do we need to be less reliant on other countries? We are obviously part of a global market and those relationships are really important. But I think one of the areas where we do need to become a little more self-sufficient is in things like fertiliser. So we need to be uh, not at the, the whim of some of those supply chains that can be easily interrupted. I think COVID taught us that. Indeed, the war in Ukraine has certainly shown us that. A lot of people would say that the supermarkets have, over the last few years, been reaping the rewards. We've got the National Party asking for an ACCC inquiry into the supermarkets and price gouging. The National Farmers Federation has also, in their in a recent survey, found that the market power of processes in supermarkets is the most concerning issue to those surveyed. So what role do you think that the supermarkets have here? Look, the supermarkets do have a role to play and I want to congratulate Woolworths. They actually showed up and gave evidence to the committee and, and, you know, took the heat. Uh, We asked them, you know, why it was that at the farm gate the prices were much lower than they seemed to be at the supermarket, you know, who was making the money. They assured us that they are a high turnover, low margin business, but we, you know, we really did try and get to the bottom of just why there is such a differential between farm gate prices and and what farmers are getting and what we're paying at the supermarkets. So that is definitely something that the Food Council would want to be working on. And we've made some really solid recommendations in and around that and looking at, you know, the consumer code, the grocery code and working with our supermarket chains and the big two particularly to see that Australians are receiving good value for money when it comes to particularly fresh fruit and fresh vegetables and fresh produce like meat and dairy. That's Agriculture Committee Chair Meryl Swanson speaking with Jane McNaughton about its report for its inquiry into food security in Australia. Uh, and it looks like, well, increasingly like there will be a Senate inquiry into whether the two major supermarkets are engaging in price gouging. Apparently, New Zealand went down a similar path some years back. And if you'd like to read more about, well, what any uh that eventuated too and what the uh, the outcome of that was in New Zealand. Uh, hop on the ABC Rural website. There's a great story on there right now by Emily Clark. It's abc.net.au forward slash rural. But uh, sticking with this, because the federal member for the South Australian seat of Mayo, Rebecca Sharkey, was on the Australian Parliament's Agriculture Committee that conducted this food security review. She joins me now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good to be with you. Now, you were one of the, the members of this uh, committee that uh, were a very long inquiry by the looks of things looking into food security. When you walked away from this, what's your overall impression of feeling about both how uh, secure food supply is in Australia but also here in South Australia? 
while we as a nation produce more food than, than we eat ourselves, I think it's really important that we recognise that food security is not something that any of us can take for granted and it's going to require ongoing attention from our community and from government. Uh, and uh, it was a very long inquiry. It took us around you know, many parts of Australia, from um, down in Tassie to look at um, the company Seaforest that's growing that special seaweed that stops cows burping, all the way to Virginia in South Australia looking at the vertical gardens. So it was a really excellent inquiry to be part of, um, and we, we've made some very firm recommendations. Of those recommendations, and there are a number, are there any that you feel particularly strong towards uh, seeing implemented or, or feel that are, really should be the priority? Well, the, the overarching requirement is to have a Minister for Food. Obviously, that will be something the Prime Minister will need to decide on and have a National um, Food Council. One of the things, you know, my electorate of Mayo, Adelaide Hills, Blue and Kangaroo Island, um, one of the areas that we saw as a real pressure point um, is around Wadji 2, one being the dairy industry, one being the seafood industry, as two areas that need um, some real attention by government because we are, from a seafood point of view, relying very heavily on imports uh, and we're seeing in the dairy industry a, a significant decline over the years in uh, the production of raw milk. And uh, I don't think that there is an Australian out there that doesn't want to be able to drink Australian milk um, and their grandchildren be able to drink Australian milk. So we need to make sure that those industries are well supported to have a good future. Um, the other issue, I think, being a South Australian, we're, we're really focused on biosecurity. You know, we see ourselves as largely a fruit fly free estate, um, despite, you know, incursions that have occurred in South Australia. But we looked at um, foot and mouth disease varroa mite, um, lumpy skin, and just recognising that there are a whole range of pressure points right across agriculture and food production um, that, is, that is a great challenge. What about transport issues and infrastructure? COVID obviously highlighted a lot of the supply chain issues, but things like the floods as well, um, you know, exacerbated that and, and that some pressure points, so an issue popped up around transport routes through South Australia, whether it's bringing produce in, taking produce out, South Australia being sort of a main link to getting produce into other states. Mm. Oh, look, that's absolutely true. And we also know that that last mile is, is the most expensive. And it's it's critical that we make sure that we have roads right across the regions that are delivering food into the cities um, where people are largely eating our food, that our, our road network is safe and practical and cost-effective to get product to market. Uh, and that's a real, a real challenge. We saw a number of global issues um, that are affecting our food security in Australia, everything from COVID. And I think COVID um, really drew people quite sharply, you know, when they were going to the supermarket and the shelves were empty. And a part of that was people taking too much at once that, out of fear, really. Um, but I think we really saw some concerns. And I guess you could almost say a sovereignty risk of the fact that are we able to feed ourselves as a nation nutritionally and part of that transport um, and part of it's the cost of production of food, um, everything um, from fertiliser right the way through to the cost of um, fuel and energy. So there's a very broad inquiry. We've made 35 recommendations, but I think, you know, first of all, it's around having a minister that's looking at this and, and then creating a food council that's bringing everyone together, transport and logistics, um, education, 
it really scares me that there are lots of people who have no idea how their food's produced, where it comes from, and we need to make sure that that's all part of the, the planning, the process, um, to really elevate this as an issue uh, and also see the opportunities. I'd like um, uh, our young people in particular to think about careers in agriculture and we definitely need to get more people thinking about working in regional Australia. Rebecca Sharkey, thank you very much for joining us on The Country Hour. Uh, my pleasure. Um, interestingly, we were so concerned about varroa mite that um, our next inquiry will be around pollination and bees. So if, um, if your listeners are interested in that, early in the new year we'll be starting that work and they'll be able to follow along through the parliamentary website. And we know there's a huge interest in that from our listeners, so um, we will certainly keep an eye on that. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was the Federal Member for Mayo, Rebecca Sharkey. It's 16 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. You're with Selena Green on this Friday. Well, yesterday at the global COP28 or COP28, Australia, along with 16 other countries, committed to promote greater use of timber in construction. But do we have enough trees in the ground to support the greater move towards timber? Well, spokesperson for the Australian Forest Products Association, Joe Prevedello, says Australia should not only be focusing on filling local supply, but global supply as well. So this really is excellent news today. What we see is a a coalition of 17 countries, including Australia, who have signed on uh, and endorsed this statement uh, to basically increase the use of wood in the construction sector. We know that wood is an excellent capturer of carbon and that it's excellent for the environment and that it's actually a a really underutilised solution to helping Australia and the world meet its emissions targets and help fight climate change. So this really is a a great development. Yes, do you think the policies that might follow this signing on will be all that different to the policies currently in place? Does it really mark any significant change? Well, the important thing about this announcement is that it's more recognition. And for so long, I think, Timber and wood and the role that it can play in climate change mitigation has been undervalued. But really now, with the momentum that we're seeing uh, with the Australian government and governments around the world wanting to find really credible solutions to actually slow global warming, they're having to you know, look a few pages deeper about what the solutions can actually be. And they're actually, I think, waking up to the fact that that wood and timber and increasing its role in, the, in construction uh, is actually a really key way to, to fight climate change and reduce emissions. If the government was to make a big commitment to increasing the use of timber in uh, construction around Australia, do we have enough timber to supply that policy change or would we need to get trees in the ground in a hurry? Certainly we need to get more trees planted in the ground as soon as possible because we know that Demand for timber and wood fibre is actually forecast to quadruple by 2050 globally. So there's a huge opportunity here, but we need to get more trees in the ground, not just to meet Australia's own timber and fibre needs and also now climate needs, but also to take advantage of the opportunities that might come internationally. Uh, With timber and wood fibre becoming increasingly popular around the world and the need to do it sustainably is really critical, Australia can be a leader here. So there are actually opportunities for us to export more resource as well that's sustainably grown and managed here in Australia. So really, we could be on the crest of a wave here 
of something quite special in terms of the demand for timber and wood fibre, which, as I said before, uh, will only potentially be a boon for areas like Mount Gambier and the southeast of SA and, and the western part of Victoria. Yes, there's quite a few, like 17 countries that have signed on to this everywhere from places like Canada to the US to the Republic of the Congo to Fiji. Where does Australia rate internationally when it comes to forestry production? Well, Australia produces a fair amount of timber for its own needs, but we're not globally recognised as a huge timber producing nation. However, as I said, I think there is an opportunity here for Australia to position itself as such because we really are right up there with the best of the world when it comes to our regulatory framework, the way we manage our forestry uh, and the way that we make sure that forestry and forest products and the way that they're produced works in a harmonious way with the environment. Not every country does that. So I think Really, this is an opportunity for Australia to strengthen its credentials on a global scale here. And yes, another key part of the agreement was sharing knowledge between these countries on how to best manage forestry. Does Australia have a lot to share in that regard? Absolutely we do. In fact, right now, uh, the federal government is setting up a major new institute in Tasmania uh, called Australian Forest and Wood Innovations in partnership with the University of Tasmania as a major new research centre. So we're actually going to be leading the world as well in the innovation space. And like I said before, we have an incredible amount of, uh, I guess, credibility uh, when it comes to our sustainable management practices and the way that we, we do forestry here. Much of the world, unfortunately, doesn't do forestry in a way that is, works harmoniously with the environment. You know, throughout much of the world, trees are harvested and they're not replaced. But in Australia, we replace the trees that we harvest, especially with regards to our native forest management. So really, I think we do have a lot to share with the rest of the world uh, when it comes to making sure that we can encourage the use of timber and wood fibre. That's the spokesperson for the Australian Forest Products Association, Joe Prevedello, speaking with Elsie Adamo. A uh, text that's come in talking about the prices supermarkets are charging and uh, I guess the discrepancy between what producers are getting for their products, uh, produce. This one just is signed Port Elliot Pensioner. It says supermarkets mummy, money grubbing cheats. Specials are more expensive than normal costs a year ago says our texter. Now, if you are without power at the moment or you found some other means to listen in, it may be on the SA, uh, ABC Listen app on your phone, which is hopefully fully charged because there are several thousand customers across South Australia as we speak without power. Uh, SA Power Networks was expecting that there would be uh, some power outages today due to uh, the weather system that's moving through the state. So, um, yes, if you are without power, uh, you know, there is expected to be possibly some lengthy power outages today. So do be aware of that. Several thousand customers I can see on the SA Power Networks outages map that uh, the majority of those are north of Adelaide. Got quite a few around Oruru, Port Pirie as well, uh, down Wallaroo Way as well, uh, quite a few people without power. And then south of Adelaide, we've got a few around Mount Barker and uh, several hundred around Victor Harbour and Second Valley as well. So 
Yes, SA Power Network saying the trifecta with the weather today, uh, putting the power supply at risk. So do be aware of that. Keep your mobile devices charged uh, so you can keep checking the CFS and Weather Bureau websites for updates uh, and that you can keep listening to the ABC Listen app for any warnings as well. Uh, If you do see any down power lines due to the winds, remember to keep well away, at least 10 metres clear and report them to 13 13 66. Now, for most people, juggling the demands of one career is more than enough. But for 24-year-old Ruby Buchanan, she's in the depths of balancing two. It's probably rare to see these two combined. Since moving from university in Armidale to far west New South Wales, Ruby's been following her passions in agriculture and law. And she explained to Lily McEwer how she started out working on sheep and goat stations while continuing her studies. I was at uni in Armidale, University of New England. I was kind, and we'd just gone through COVID for the past two years, and was kind of getting a bit restless <laughs> at uni, and was looking for to get back into station work. So I started over at Rollinner Station in WA for Jumbuck Pastoral when I was eighteen. I took two gap years over there. Yeah, then I had to go to uni because <laughs> I had to educate myself and. Yeah, and so I wanted to earn some more money, get back into it. And I had a friend, or my dad had a friend who was an investor in a station in Menindee. So yeah, that was how I came to the far west. Without having many station contacts when she first arrived in the bush, Ruby had to start her mustering business from scratch. She says that initially it was tough, but it's all paid off. I literally just cold called people. <laughs> it's pretty embarrassing. And just like sent emails... Facebook, on the mustering page, like, and then just literally just try, just any job I could get, I just took it and now now it's really fun and it's now that I'm a bit more established. But yeah, back then it was literally, I would just like call people randomly, like anyone who I remotely knew who maybe knew someone who had a station, I'd be like, oh, do you want me to come there? And like, I didn't have a motorbike or anything at the start and I didn't, I had one dog. And what were people's first impressions when you'd rock up to their station and tell them your experience and I guess your background well every time that I rock up to a station a new place that I haven't worked at everyone thinks I'm a backpacker who has no idea because I um also I wear like a lot of jewelry and like I wear pink and I talk probably a bit different to everyone else getting from A to B in remote areas can be a challenge without the luxury of numerous fuel stations and limited mobile service ensuring you are prepared can be critical Yet Ruby has been able to get by without all the spicks and specs. So I have a 1999 RAV4 that is green. It has no aircon and we're in the heat of summer right now, so it's shocking to drive. And then I have my two dogs, my two Kelpies, Holler and Smiley, in the back seat. So they take the back seat and then I cram my swag and my clothes in the, in the little boot. And then I have a 6x4, which I got off Marketplace for $250. And I have my motorbike on there. Um, Yeah, and then we just drive around in that and it's not ideal. When you first rock up and you haven't worked for them, like they're like, whoa, and they'll probably put you down a peg maybe in their mind. But literally, I think you just have to push through that for the first day. Forging a path in both industries, Ruby says it hasn't all been easy trying to meet university deadlines while ensuring she is keeping her employers happy.
She says that she's learned to be extra organised while ensuring she is open and honest with her employers and teachers. Sometimes it's really stressful because I'm like trying to kind of make a path in both of these areas because I'm so passionate in both of them. So I want to give like quite a lot to both and I don't want to say no to, to mustering jobs and I don't want to you know, put my studies on the back burner either and even volunteering at the ALS, like that is, like finding time to, to do that is near impossible as well. And I just kind of plan ahead. I have my Google calendar and I really plan ahead like when I have my assignments due, um, when I have my exams and I just really make sure that I don't book work around those dates which means that usually everything's quite back-to-back. Like, it might be finishing a job and then finishing the assignment, like, the next day, racing back to town to get it in. But then, you know, if things don't align and something does pop up that I need to either go to a job or I need to do an assignment that somehow has escaped my mind, all the stations I work at, they know that I'm studying law and they're all... Like, I'm very upfront about it. I always say that that kind of is something that I have to prioritise at times. I would say all of them give me the time when I, when I need it to do my assignments and they're super understanding and I think that they all kind of believe it'll all come back around to them too like I'll be able to help them out you know they're helping me out now. Have you come across people that have been really surprised by you juggling a law degree and then mustering? Yes literally every person that I meet is like what? Everyone is so taken back when I say that I'm studying law and it's such a question of like well why why are you mustering and working on stations and what is the overlap there and the overlap literally is that I my passion like I love both of them so much and I don't want to stop doing either. Do you think that in the future you'll be able to keep working in both industries? Uh yeah definitely so I well like long term I want to like live on a station and own a station one day and I think that What's becoming apparent as I'm getting older, the way, the only way that really you, that someone who wasn't born on a station, born into it, can kind of achieve it is by like going out and, ha- and having to earn a reasonable amount of money to do that. And I think from working on stations for the past six years and stuff like that, I haven't saved quite, I haven't saved a lot of money. I don't really think there's, there's a lot of money in it. It's more like it's more a lifestyle definitely and so if my other passion like being law if that is the way that I can get to help people and own a station and well then that's kind of something that I'm willing to compromise on and if I eventually can get there. What would you say I guess to other people that do have two you know serious passions or more than two and want to try and do them at the same time? I would say it's so doable. If you're open and honest about with everyone about what is going on, like I am with my teachers and I am with the people I work for, it's, yeah, it's so doable. And you just have to make time for both and plan. And I haven't really found it like the same kind of experience I think that other people have where they need to like be face-to-face doing lectures, be physically present. I don't think I would learn as easily that way because I'd feel so, I'd feel so like forced to do it and in that environment it would be so like traditional to sit there and and have to do those things doing it remotely like like this is it just makes it more enjoyable makes it not like a chore that I have to do all the time because I don't have to do it once I'm sick of one I get to go to the other that's Musterer and university student Ruby Buchanan speaking there to Lily McEwer. You can read more about story, Ruby's story online and some great pics to go along with it at abc.net.au forward slash rural or go to the ABC Broken Hill website. That's it for me for today. Thank you so much for your company.
It's just going on news time. It's one o'clock. The safest option in a bushfire is always to leave early. And you should consider what you'll do with your animals to keep them safe. When you're relocating, remember to pack for your pets. If your plan is to stay and actively defend your property, keep your pets safe by locking them in a room like a toilet or laundry and ensure they have access to plenty of water. Keep listening to ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.